0: I'm Ken Thompson, one of the senior editors of uh, Functional Ecology, and I've caught up with Emma Sayer, who's one of our, uh, member of our editorial board, at the British Ecological Society annual meeting here at Edinburgh. So if you hear any noises off, that's that's why. Uh, Emma put together for us a virtual issue on microbes, making the most of microbes, it was called selection of papers on microbial ecology from the last 15 years or so of functional ecology. And I looked through that uh, through that virtual issue and picked out one or two things that I thought would be interesting to talk to Emily about. And uh, I'm not a soil ecologist at all, and I, and I hadn't read any of the papers originally, but I have to say that one of the papers which I'm sorry I hadn't read, and I should have read, was Alistair Fitter's summary of the NERC funded um, soil biodiversity program at uh, Syrup, which is quite a few years ago now, and uh, there were lots of interesting things in that paper. But One that surprised me a lot was the extraordinary speed with which the carbon moves through the system. When they, when they, when they added labelled carbon to the plants, it turned up in the uh, AM fungi in the soil within an hour. And the turnover time in the AM fungi themselves was about five days. They're all gone after five days, the label. So I was very surprised by that. Is that, is that very dynamic uh, behaviour at all unusual?
1: Um, no, I think a lot, of, a lot of the carbon taken up by plants through photosynthesis is incredibly dynamic. Um, we've been applying uh, root exudates to soils and, and measuring the respiration response of microbes. And they've Root exudates are used up within minutes to hours, and fine roots can turn over in a matter of weeks. So I think a, an awful lot of the carbon going into the soil and being processed by microbes is incredibly dynamic.
0: OK, right. Another surprise to me was how much of the organic matter at Syrup had been processed by analytes. And essentially what they found was that the surface horizons of the soil had all been through worms, through uh, one sort or another, um, and at syrup, most of these worms, obviously, because it's an acid grassland, were um, entombrates. But is that true of all soils?
1: Um, I think any any soil that has earthworms in it, a, a large proportion of the soil will pass through the earthworm guts at some point or other. Um, I think any any gardener knows how important earthworms are for mixing organic matter into the soil. Um, but they also help maintain soil porosity um, and forming form macroaggregates. Um, and yeah, in a good soil with lots of earthworms, um, the top fifteen centimeters of the soil can turn, or will probably pass through earthworms at some point or other within ten to twenty years. So most of the top soil um, in in a good soil with lots of worms has passed through an earthworm gut at some point or other.
0: Right. So soil, as we know it, is it depends on earthworms basically. Um, and
1: there are there are soils that that have very very few earthworms in and and especially acidic soils but yes I'm, they're, they're incredibly important so uh, there's, there's I'm no expert on earthworms but there's an awful lot of research on earthworms and looking at invasive species as well and how invasive species um, affect uh, carbon turnover decomposition rates and those kind of things yeah um, so yes earthworms are, are incredibly important for mixing um, the soil and, and getting organic mm-hmm. matter down to deeper depths and right Maintaining soil structure, yeah, very important.
0: Mm. Uh, Alistair's paper also highlighted the taxonomic diversity of soil organisms at, at syrup. I think he says there there could be 5,000 species of bacteria yeah. at syrup, and, and I think we've agreed already that that's probably pretty massive underestimate. Um, so there must surely be massive functional redundancy um, among all these microbes.
1: That's generally the assumption, that the huge huge diversity of soil microorganisms will um, result in very high functional redundancy. I think I think that m- might be a, a bit of a simplification, and I think it depends very much on the system you're looking at. So if you have a, a substrate that is that is chemically very diverse, so not like syrup, so somewhere with um, a very diverse plant community and perennials and annuals and um, lots of... of uh, different types of, of plant litter and plant materials, then you're more likely to have um, groups of, of specialised organisms and lower functional redundancy. And I think you get very high functional redundancy maybe when when the, the large proportion of the microbial community is um, a generalist and specialised on, or not specialised uh, on, on specific materials, but just, just the, sort of the, the, I suppose what we think of, as the regular carbon turnover.
0: Yeah. So the, the, the very low functional and taxonomic richness of the vegetation of syrup means that perhaps there is a lot of functional redundancy among the microbes, but in a, in a more species-rich vegetation, that, that would be... things would be slightly different
1: yes that that would be my guess, um, but it really is a guess and this is this is one of the fascinating things and I'm not a soil ecologist i'm, I'm actually a plant ecologist by training, but if you're looking at ecosystem processes um, and and looking at the ecosystem as a whole the soil soil's really intriguing because we know so little. We can't really identify um, the, the the taxa in the soil. We can't look at the soil without disturbing it. Um, We don't know what most of the soil organisms actually do and and we're only sort of starting to open that up with with things like sequencing and transcriptomics and um, uh, really, really trying to find out more about what are the functional groups of microbes in the soil and and is it true that high high biodiversity begets high functional diversity?
0: Right. Another another paper that took my fancy uh, in this virtual issue, and I know this is a subject close to your heart, is, is um, priming, um, which is the idea that inputs of uh, carbon, often a very labile carbon, um, such as glucose or sucrose, stimulate the mineralization of stored soil organic matter, so that you, you often end up getting more carbon out of the soil than you, than you actually put in. Um, and there's a, there's a nice recent paper in the virtual issue by Rousketal, and they found strong evidence for priming, as most people seem to find. Um, decomposition was strongly promoted by adding glucose Um, but they didn't seem to find a great deal of extra microbial growth and so I'm not quite sure what is going on when we have priming.
1: So the the simple definition of priming effects is when the addition of um, extra labile organic matter promotes the decomposition of older uh, sort of organic carbon and it's 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 a tricky one. Um, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon because, although we've been studying it now for um, a good sixty years or so. Um, We don't really know why it occurs, and it seems a bit counterintuitive that when you add extra carbon to the soil, you should promote Mm -hmm. mineralisation of stored carbon. Um, But as you said, there's a a lot of evidence for it. One of the problems is that most of the evidence for priming effects is from lab experiments. They're very small-scale. They're done in jars, incubation jars, with... 10 20 50 grams of soil Mm -hmm. and substrate additions like glucose or sugar um, or maybe amino acids or or single organic acids it's not really very realistic the soil's been um, sieved and homogenized Um, it's been oxygenated so more of the carbon is susceptible to microbial attack but it's the only way really we can we can find out what the mechanisms are that lead to carbon release by priming, um, there are now quite a number of field experiments that show that this does occur in in the field when you add litter, for example. So litter, litter addition, doubling the amount of litter fall uh, returning to the soil can produce prim- pretty strong priming effects. Um, and yeah, th- this this paper looked at um, uh, looked at one of the three hypotheses for priming. Um, so there are. The, the three main hypotheses really are that, that uh, the extra carbon stimulates growth and activity and priming occurs as kind of a side effect of, of um, higher enzyme activity. Um, Mm -hmm. so just by increasing the activity of the microbes more of the older carbon is is also mineralized in the process the second hypothesis is that when you add um, large inputs of carbon you create a a, a nitrogen deficit because decomposition occurs at a fixed carbon to nitrogen ratio and soil organic matter is a great source of nitrogen and so the microbes um, mine soil organic matter to obtain nitrogen Mm. and then the final uh, sort of Main hypothesis is that um, by adding uh, different substrates, in particular, if you add a a more complex substrate, so not glucose, um, as as the authors did in this paper, you create uh, you stimulate competition between different microbial groups. Hmm. The labile carbons used up very quickly, and by fast-growing microbes, and what's left over um, then gives the slower-growing microbes a competitive advantage because all the labile carbons been used up. Right, and so there there are various papers that test one of these three hypotheses, and there's very strong evidence for all three and um so so it sort of takes us back to where we started really We don 't really know why it happens; there seem to be different reasons um, and there aren't that many tests looking at different soils, for example, or comparing different substrates, different amounts of substrates um, what I think might actually be happening is that these these hypotheses are not mutually exclusive and actually testing them in isolation is is what we need to do to get some answers in the first instance but if you think of them uh in a field situation if you have increased root exudation um the extra carbon nice tasty carbon it stimulates microbes microbial activity um the production of enzymes and the increased activity and increased growth creates the nitrogen deficit and those microbes that are able to mine soil organic matter for nitrogen then have a competitive advantage so you'd have all three mechanisms occurring together right um and I I think I think in a way in a field situation that might be more realistic a realistic way of thinking of it but we're yes we've been we've been studying this phenomenon for for decades and and uh we know we know that it seems to be a real phenomenon that does happen
0: right um
1: it might be particularly interesting after, for example, a very large storm or a large drought, where a lot of plant material returns to the soil mm. all at once. And there is also pretty strong evidence of, of seasonal priming effects, just from seasonal litterfall. Yeah, um, there are a couple of papers showing showing that, that this might actually be a pretty normal part of the, the carbon cycle. Right,
0: right. So this is this happens. This is not a weird thing. This this happens. All, all over the place every year.
1: I sus- i suspect as much. It's. I think it's become a phenomenon because it's been looked at in isolation in the lab. Right. But if you if you think about it, we have main litter for once a year, and um, and that you know, that's, that's sort of a very large pulse of litter that yeah. is going to provoke a response in the system.
0: Yes. Um, another paper that I liked because I liked the the neat experiment. Was the, was the one by Melanie Poliere, which used the Swiss Canopy Crane CO2 project, where a, a forest is labelled with, with CO2 depleted in 13C. So you can then separate the carbon fluxes originating from litter and by by swapping labelled litter into a, into an unlabeled control. Um, and this study, and I think earlier studies from the same experiment, found that the um, the the main source of food for the below ground food web seemed to be carbon from roots, rather than carbon entering the soil via leaf litter. And uh, I kind of I was kind of surprised by that because I thought there's a lot of leaf litter entering, you know, falling onto the soil surface um, in a forest. If it's not making a big contribution to the below ground food web, then what is what is actually happening to it?
1: um there again it's it's another one that I've, there isn't really a definitive answer um i've seen estimates that about 2% of the carbon from litter actually goes into the soil and gets stored most of it is respired during decomposition and i think i think one one way of thinking of it is or, or we, we tend to separate mineral soil from litter layer um, and look at them, uh, the, uh, concentrate on what's going on in the soil. And I do wonder how much is actually happening in the litter there that we're ignoring or not capturing, um, partly because we don't have the techniques to do it, but also um, because we, we tend to focus on the soil and we think of the litter layer as something transient. Um, in this case, this was actually a beech forest. Yes. Which is which is a special case because beach litter is notoriously slow, notoriously
0: recalcitrant. Yes, yes, um, yes,
1: to decompose and uh, lies around for ages, and and there don't seem to be an awful lot of right. of uh, the sort of fauna that can, yeah. that can actually use beach litter. So yeah. um, I, there there might be an element of that here, um, but yeah, I I did find it interesting that that so little of the. The carbon from the litter seemed to be yeah. entering the soil food web and it was more based on roots and, and mycorrhizae in particular.
0: So partly it's partly this is this is because this is beach, which is a bit unusual. Mm. And partly it's partly it's the fact that the soil, that carbon, if it goes via the roots, it's delivered directly to the mineral soil. Directly yes. to the mycorrhizae. So there's no there's no middleman yeah. at all. Yes. With yeah, okay. So I can yeah, I, I think yeah. I begin to understand what's going on. Um <laughs> And and the one just just to raise one other paper which I which I read in this in this virtual issue, uh, Phil, Phil Stadden's paper on uh, CO two enrichment in a and Swiss experiment again a grassland face experiment and um, to 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 cut a long story short, I think this paper showed that not a lot happened below ground. I mean, there seemed to be a bit more microbial biomass, a bit more CO two went into the soil, a bit more came out, and not really a great deal happened, to be honest. And is that because is that because there's a lot of CO2 in its soil anyway, so adding more CO2 doesn't make any difference, or not much difference?
1: Um, I think I think it depends very much on the, again, it always depends on the system, doesn't it, which, which system you, yes. you
0: know, yes. do
1: the experiment in. Um, but also, um, there I, we may need to start asking questions a little bit in, in, in a different way, because there are... A few now, a few CO2 enrichment studies that have shown that over the long term, you don't get very large changes. There don't seem to be big changes in soil carbon storage. Right. But if you then start looking at the age and turnover rates of the carbon in the soil, you can see the carbon getting younger. So what seems to be happening in some experiments? This one, I don't know. Um, but but there's there's evidence from from other experiments where they've done CO2 in, uh, enrichment over over a very long period of time. And uh, and then looked at the stability of the soil carbon, and it looks like the a lot of the older carbon is being primed. So um, mostly it appears through root exudates. Um, huh. uh, so the uh, extra e- extra CO two taken up, um, the plants seem to invest um, quite a lot of it in root exudates. Um, and, and below ground growth, especially when the soil's infertile, so right. it, you don't need the nutrients to be able to use yes. the additional CO2 and grow. Um, and so there is a very large flux of labile carbon into the soil. Yep. Quite a few face experiments have shown that this then produces priming effects. Uh, so there's a lot of labile, right. fresh labile carbon going into the soil. Yep. There's, a, there's more leaf litter um, yep. returning to the soil, um, uh, root growth, root exudation. Um, and, and this causes priming effects, releases older soil carbon, yep. but the storage of the new soil carbon makes up for the priming effects. So overall, oh, okay. the carbon stocks stay the same. Yep. The big question is, are we losing out on carbon stability? How how long will it take for that labile carbon right. to become older soil carbon? How stable right. is it? So I think that's that's one of the big questions from some of these... Um, co2 enrichment experiments that we don't really know because we don't the time frames for carbon storage over the long term obviously usually way 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 beyond the scope of even long-term studies yes so that that's a big question are we you know we're not changing the overall pools but are we changing the stability of those pools
0: right so priming again
1: possibly yes it's all priming (laughs) It's an interesting thing to study. Interesting thing to work
0: on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're working on it.
1: Yes. So you're going to have a few more
0: answers in a few.
1: I hope so. Yes.
0: Few years down the line. Okay. Thank you very much. That's a nice way to end uh, the International Year of Soil, which we're just a few days away from the end of. So, uh, Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Merry Christmas.